This episode of Hollow Biont is a conversation with Dr. Patrick Flammer, who also works with Dr. Adrian Smith, both from the Department of Zoology at the University of Oxford. Their research makes the fields of infectious diseases, archaeology, and history intersect, as they are investigating remains of ancient human parasites. Here we discuss one of their most recent large-scale studies, where medieval burial grounds across Europe were sampled to study intestinal worm parasites, and we talk about how we can make these biological data tell stories about the past. Maybe you can just start by telling us how you got into this field of research, which is a bit atypical. How I got into this field? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a strange story to get into a strange research topic, I think. Um, so I was I, I come from a background uh, of molecular biology and uh, genetics, and I was always interested in, in infection. At some point, I came up with the idea of, of working with uh, something that is slightly different. Uh, so I wanted to work on infections in, in uh, archaeology. So um, I then got in touch with um, the research group I'm currently working with. And um, even though Adrian uh, is a parasitologist and immunologist, and he thought like, well, we could work together on, on parasites. So uh, I started then working on uh, ancient parasites. And what is actually quite interesting about those is that uh, you can see them. So other than things like um, plague or tuberculosis or malaria, which are sometimes seen in, in the bone, but it's hardly ever very clear, uh, the parasites can be seen quickly. And um, they're quite diagnostic. Uh, so they've, they've retained their shape and uh, you can even put them next to, to clinical pictures and you, you'll see, you can, you can show someone, look, these are the same things. And you look at them like, yes, they're definitely the same thing. And it's been, I mean, there, there was research done before. Um, the first uh, research I'm aware of, it dates to the early 20th century when uh, in 1910, uh, Mark Rothfeld um, work on Egyptian mummies, uh, and he found some uh, schistosoma. Um, but then, even though that's been found quite frequently, and there's um, there is a clear evidence that it's been around, there hasn't been much done in a very systematic way. Um, and so, the study I wanted to speak about in particular is um, also very unusual. So, what you did is you went around graveyard sites in, in three countries in Europe. And essentially sampled skeletal remains for intestinal parasites. Yeah. So maybe you want to just tell us about how this this study came about because obviously it needed collaborations and what what was your aim um, in this investigation? So um, uh, the study, the research study, uh, is is always it's always restricted by um, just the, um, the the amount of uh, of samples you have in hand, and um, so when uh, when we started this research, I, I was trying to reach out to uh, as many people as I could to who are on the archaeology side, because I'm not a trained archaeologist, to um, uh, to collect some samples for us. Now, um, when we looked at the literature and some of the samples, the parasites are very common. Uh, basically, any medieval um, samples from cesspits or from communal waste deposits. Um, contain parasites and they're like this this is really strange because in Europe nowadays 
there's there's no parasites. These these are no longer around. So, are, is that just? Are we just sampling all the all the ones that have parasites, or is that something really common? So uh, we approached um, uh, a lot of people um, to who were um, curating um, in in graveyards, and um, so we had the very fortune, uh, the good fortune to, to have colleagues in the Czech Republic who uh, excavated large, um, two, uh, one large and smaller graveyard, um, had good connections to um, these uh, archaeology units in uh, southern Germany, and they had uh, massive graveyards uh, as well. I mean, one of them is over 200 graves that we got samples from. And uh, also with colleagues here at Oxford Archaeology, um, uh, graveyards in the uh, in the UK, and what we actually wanted to see is, are these common? How common are these? Is that just is because if you if you look at the, the at a cesspit, see it could be one one person in ten have has a lot of parasites, and that's why we still see them. Or it could be one in twenty. We don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so what we wanted to figure out is how frequent were these and. Okay, and in the first place, the fact that they were well conserved, is that um, the feature of intestinal helmets some, somehow, or was that um, quite surprising that you were even able to retrieve uh, samples of these parasites? Um, the, the conservation itself isn't, that's, isn't very um, surprising, to be honest. Uh, it's the way the, the parasite um, reproduces, uh, the parasite biology is that um, the the, uh, the, the human gets infected by ingesting parasite eggs. They will then um, hatch in the, um, depending on the parasite uh, in different uh, intestinal system, and then they will produce more parasite eggs there. Actually quite a lot of parasite eggs, depending on the species, somewhere between 50,000 and a million per this. And um, the stage in the soil where the first um, embryonation happens, uh, they get first into the soil and then through contaminated water go back into humans. So if you if you think about the the way that works, the, the parasite shell has to be extremely robust. So what we see is um, not necessarily the um, we, so we don't see the, the parasite itself in the um, in the X anymore. So if you look at clinical pictures, you would see a little line there, but we see um, that the, the eggs are still intact. And especially with Tricurus, the, the human whipworm, which has a very characteristic sort of oval shape with two polar plugs, um, you can still see that there's something in there. And actually the, the picture we have in the, in the paper, there's, you can see some bubbles in there. Uh, it's not, we're not entirely sure what exactly this is, probably some liquids uh, or, and other debris, but it, gave us the indication that there is something in there and there might still be DNA in there. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the working materials essentially is DNA, but um, there's special challenges that come with such ancient DNA. So what are these and what protocols do you have to use and methods you have to adjust um, to work with this, this ancient DNA? So ancient DNA has, um, Actually, basically, there's, there's two main issues with, uh, with DNA stability. Because um, DNA is not that stable. Um, it's, um, and the, the main issues we have is fragmentation, 
uh, where it breaks uh, in usually in some places. And um, we also have the um, deamination. The most uh, commonly seen um, degradation pattern in ancient DNA is uh, cytosine deamination, which is a chemical change that leads it to be read as a different base, uh, more like a uracil, which then leads to the patterns of uh, C2T, so it's read uh, like a timidin, uh, so it's a C2T transition. Uh, advantage we have in the parasite eggs is that the eggs themselves um, are like a capsule where they uh, concentrate, the DNA is much more concentrated than in, it would be in the general, uh, just in the, in the, in the sediments. Um, we also have uh, probably much less um, uh, external um, degradation, so it's through uh, other organisms, uh, microorganisms, or uh, even uh, any any sort of enzymes in the in the soils, which is is to our advantage. Um, the approach we've chosen to use is um, PCR based because we know we only have very small traces of very DNA. So we're trying to amplify um, stable, um, very um, yeah, quite um, stable, quite conserved regions, but also a very variable region to because of the they give us two sort of different kinds of information, uh, species identification, whereas uh, variable regions would actually give us some more uh, information about uh, haplotypes, about so subtype of, of the parasite. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the metrics you get, um, at least some that are exploitable, are like the, the diversity of sequences. Um, and what kind of information can you actually glean from that? Like, what does it tell you about parasite ecology if you have many diverse sequences? Actually, what is also very interesting is that we've got high diversity in different eggs. Yeah, high diversity can actually be two different things. Uh, it could be the number of different species we see, uh, as in indicators for hygiene and, uh, and diet, or, or we could look at the um, genetic diversity, which gives us slightly different information about connectivity and about um, how many different parasites were there. If you only have one, um, genetically one type, it's, it's a, it must be a very small um, population. Uh, whereas if we see um, high genetic diversity, what we, we can assess is that we have um, much more different uh, parasites parasite subgroups um, or parasite subtypes. Um, I don't want to call them like species because we don't actually know, uh, but we definitely have much more individuals uh, of, of parasites in the, in the population. And um, in what we've actually seen in the, in the graveyard population is that a single individual actually only has very few um, parasites. Whereas if we combine, uh, compare that to a, a latrine, we see a much, much higher um, uh, diversity in the latrine, which also then gives us the information that if we've got one single individual that has very few different parasites, diversity, we can then start estimating that this latrine must have been used by a larger number of, uh, of people. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so from the site you reconstruct kind of the diversity of sequences and also the prevalence of infection in that area. And so you kind of um, classify by several different factors, such as um, the age, the sex, and the estimated size of population. Did you see that any of them 
showed significant associations and what kind of was the, the best uh, explanation factor? Uh, is So we, we tried to um, arrange everything by uh, all the information we had from the, from the osteology. And what we've seen is that there is an association with children having higher prevalence of parasites. This is uh, very similar to see in modern populations. And if you, if you look at behavior of children and then how the, um, the transmission happens, so it happens from contaminated soils or waters. Um, so it, it's, it doesn't need actually much explanation to, to say, to show that children have a um, uh, load of parasites. Um, however, we couldn't see much more with um, with age or with, with sex in the in the population, or even with population size, which again sort of makes sense if we compare that to modern data. Um, I'm saying we compare to modern data because we, that's the only comparison set we have. So this is a very unique study, um, and uh, so we, we try to com uh, compare it with modern data. And what we see in modern data is actually very similar. In some population, we've got a higher prevalence of women or men. We see that in some sites as well, but overall, there's no, no bias. Um, so the only, uh, the only thing we actually see is that children have a higher prevalence, and that is very similar to modern populations, which basically would show that the parasite uh, epidemiology in medieval Europe is the same as in modern endemic uh, regions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, it was the kind of the same factors shaping the spread. And what also, since parasites have such um, complex life cycles, they usually also have stages in animals. Um, so is zoonotic transfer of any importance in intestinal helminths? And then maybe were the exchanges that they were having with animals likely to, to shape the prevalence? Um, I mean, it, it really depends which parasite you're looking at. For the ones which are fecal oral transmitted, so they're human-human, they go out one end, come, in, come back in the other end, um, there's probably not as much importance, um, but uh, there are other, other ones where we actually do have, um, do have such information. So we've, the ones where, where the infection comes from consuming meat, for instance, or fish. So we've got the uh, Davlobothum latum uh, from freshwater fish or Tania, which comes from either uh, consuming pork or um, beef. What is interesting about those is they would, um, so it's a larval state in the, in the animal. So it would actually mean that if the meat would have been cooked thoroughly, the infection couldn't take place. So if we see uh, Tania or Dapalobothium, what we can actually say is there is a diet. Uh, there is some sort that they eat raw freshwater fish or raw beef. And actually we've done uh, or a previous paper on the um, medieval city of Lübeck mostly. Um, what we've seen there is that until about 13th century, we see a lot of Dapalobothium, so they must have eaten freshwater fish. And then that disappears nearly completely, but what um, goes up instead is um, Tania suginata. So they started then eating raw beef. Now, why this happened, we don't know. Um, we asked historians and they said, this makes no sense. We, we really don't know what happened, what we're talking, what you're talking about. But we can see that in the parasites, there must have been something. And one of the 
potential explanations we, we discussed is that um, that vacuum has um, two intermediate hosts, or at least two. And one of them is a copepode. Um, copepodes um, are quite often used as indicators of water quality. So it could be that the um, life cycle was by contaminating the rivers where the, the fish were sourced from. Um, now, again, we, we have no way of proving that, that's just speculation, but it's, it's a possibility what could have happened. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah, making these speculations is kind of what gives a thrill to this research. But as you did say at the start, and any scientist is limited by the avail availability of its samples. So here in total, you had seven sites. Um, and of course, we could think of a host of all confounding factors that could be um, limiting conclusions made from these sites. So just some I was thinking about was, um, for example, are there long maritime trade routes? Maybe they have more exchange with other distant regions. Um, also the site where people are buried is very linked to socioeconomic status. Um, so maybe if you see a higher prevalence in, in common burial sites, that wouldn't be the case in maybe uh, richer populations. Um, maybe, yeah, you could comment on how, how valid it is to make conclusions based on these like limited sets of archaeological data. Yes, uh, I mean, it is, it is a, a very difficult thing because even though this is the biggest study that exists, it is still limited. Now, some of it um, we actually have some insight into. So one of the sites uh, that I, um, we got samples from, from our colleagues at the Mass University in the Czech Republic is the site of uh, Bohansko. I'm probably mispronouncing that because I don't really speak Czech. But um, what we found then is, so it was a burial in a, a sort of Slavic um, settlement, Christianized, but it's a Slavic settlement. There is in the middle, there's a, a church, uh, a round characteristic of a Tunda church. And we had individuals from inside the church as well. And we had individuals because it's, um, it was still common to give at least some of the burials grave goods. So we had them with, um, uh, with various grave goods. And um, what we see there is it doesn't matter where they're buried, inside the chapel, with grave goods, without grave goods. The parasite is everywhere. Um, we know that wealth is definitely not a confounding factor because um, there's been studies on the court of uh, Louis XIV in France, where they found it, well, at least in a, whether the king himself was in the toilet, we don't know, but uh, it was at his court and there were lots of parasites. Uh, as an example, Richard III, um, he had parasites or or traders in Lübeck. They were uh, among the richest traders um, in Lübeck, and Lübeck was probably one of the richest, if not the richest city in Europe at the time. Uh, of some of the houses we that they've been um, uh, chancellors of the city, and at the time to become a chancellor of the city, you needed to be of good standing and rich, basically, and have rich friends. Um, so we know all of these people have parasites, so we can probably say that state wasn't uh, necessarily um, an indication. Um, also coming back to Lübeck, uh, when we compared Lübeck as an important port at the time with other non-port cities, we could see that the genetic diversity was much higher. So 
long distance trade was definitely um, a thing that would increase the, the parasite load in, um, in the individuals. Um, now, so it wasn't known really how the, the parasite would affect people. And that was surprisingly uh, very recent knowledge, uh, not recent as for these, these people definitely didn't know how the parasite spread. They probably didn't even know that they have parasites because they don't actually have a lot of symptoms. And uh, until the mid uh, 19th century, actually fully clear how parasites were transmitted. And so they didn't know, they didn't have a lot of um, symptoms. So we think that the people just didn't care much about the parasites, which is fortunate for us because if you think about uh, someone contracting a plague, they have a chance of one in three to survive a week. If you have a parasite that doesn't actually do anything with you, but lives inside you for a year, sometimes up to 20 years, um, you might still go traveling. You will go traveling. You will do whatever you were doing anyway, um, because the most common symptom, if any, is just a bit of, a bit of a stomach pain. That just happens anyway. So it's, um, yes, sorry, I deviated a bit. So to come back to, to the question about how, how much speculation can we actually do? Um, yes, it is very limited. Uh, what we can say, especially if you compare it to modern um, samples, so we can say uh, in, in historic Europe, uh, in medieval Europe, prevalence was likely similar to, to modern populations. We see fluctuations in modern populations. We see differences in historic populations. That seems to make sense. Um, of course, more samples would be better, but... Yeah, and yeah. So in modern populations, you mean in regions where it's endemic, but in... Yes. Yeah. Um, it's fallen to like negligible levels, right? Uh, in, in Europe, it's um, yeah. In, in Europe, it, it's not really uh, prevalent anymore. Um, when exactly it disappeared is unclear. Uh, probably um, somewhere between 1900 and 1950, uh, we see the of the few historic uh, records we have, we see fallen numbers uh, around 1900. Um, probably to do with water reforms like the Metropolitan Water Act in London and, and similar things. Uh, we see a brief resurgence after World War II, especially in um, heavily affected regions of Europe, like Germany and, and Italy. But um, a massive problem in a lot of uh, developing countries. And um, according to the World Health Organization, it's probably about one in six of the world population uh, that are affected by um, intestinal parasites. So it, it is still this large populations where these are endemic and uh, a problem. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so this is something you mentioned in the paper that there has been a decline in some regions, even though the populations were blind to it, they didn't really know it was there, but simply sanitation and what we call wash measures were enough. Um, and what struck me as quite um, not funny about that, but our current approach to tackling infectious disease is like a hyper-rational uh, we have need rational targeting of the pathogen, we reverse vaccinology, those kinds of things. But what um, this, this precedent suggests is that simply the like very non-specific uh, improving infrastructure, improving sanitation could be enough. So hopefully that's, uh, I mean, that's hopeful for the regions where, where it is endemic. 
Yes, it, it definitely definitely is. Um, interestingly, uh, actually, to, um, the Romans had a lot of parasites, even though they're always um, claimed to be a very um, uh, high on um, sanitation. But because they didn't know that these parasites existed, well, I mean, that's at least what we can see. Uh, we see a lot of uh, Roman sites having lots of parasites. Um, but yes, modern um, style sanitation is definitely a way forward. Um, there are there have been studies, even very early studies, where um, in, uh, access to clean water and um, uh, the proper treatment or just disposal of, uh, of waste is um, is important and uh, helps to lower the number significantly. Um, so yes, there, there is definitely hope for, for a lot of um, endemic regions. Also, add to add to, to this, nowadays we actually do have um, uh, medications that are um, very safe and effective. Uh, they're also very cheap. So a lot of um, regions get them uh, sponsored, sometimes even pharmaceutical companies. So they're very, very cheap to produce. They've been uh, around since the... Uh, some of them since the late 60s, I believe. So they're, they're, they're safe to they have, um, and they're very effective for, for parasites. Yeah, things like ivermectin, but of course, for parasites, not for, mm -hmm. not for any other purposes. Yes, uh, albendazole, for instance, is one that is used um, quite commonly. Um, yeah, they, they, do, they do work um, for parasites. Well, I don't think they're, they're used to, they work for anything else. Um, and the way we're framing this is as if um, removing parasites is good news, which to a large extent it is. But there is also a lot of data on how decreased infectious disease burden come at the cost of um, increased allergies and increased autoimmune diseases. So the parasites have less this kind of, of legacy on our immune system that, make, that makes it such that in their absence um, it dysfunctions. So this is commonly known as a hygiene hypothesis. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about that? Uh, yes, I mean, what, what we um, observe is that, um, so there's, there's two classical cases um, where we observe that, and that's um, Japan and South Korea, because they, of their um, devastating um, impact of World War II, um, the Korean War, uh, where a lot of the uh, infrastructure, a lot of the buildings were destroyed, and then it was modernized, uh, the infrastructure was modernized really quickly, uh, lots, of, lots of outside help. Um, there was also a large educational campaign. And what we see is that um, within a few years, maybe 20 years or so, the um, prevalence rates fall from very, very high. Um, some, uh, some parts of the population was, if I remember correctly, somewhere 70%, it falls to basically non-existent. What we then see is especially, um, especially remember that in, in Japan, um, that uh, things like asthma, and if you plotted uh, the incidence rates with the parasites go down, the um, uh, autoimmune, uh, autoimmune um, diseases going up. Um, how exactly this, um, not entirely, but um, there's definitely some information about so as far as kind of the immunological players involved, it's um, there's a lot of literature about the Th2 arm. 
So this is um, essentially one of the polarizations of CD4 T cells that have a TH2 phenotype, which is mostly, well, usually, in, usually involved in eukaryotic, um, anti-eukaryotic responses. So this is one that dysfunction, would you say that's the primary one or are there also other even innate um, systems that would be responsible for, the, for this effect? Well, it's, I think it's quite complex. Um, the, I, the simple answer is it I, doesn't seem to be only TH2. Um, there might be other cells, uh, other subsets of cells and other mechanisms involved. Um, TH2 are often involved in protectalment uh, infections, um, and they're also involved with, with allergies, so it seems to be a um, straightforward and attractive um, link, but it, it doesn't seem to be the entire story. Um, it's probably related to how the system learns, uh, how to regulate immune responses, uh, which might also involve other subsets of T, um, T cells, uh, like inducible T rags. Um, the question of innate involvement is uh, it, it, it's really difficult to say. Um, it's, I, it, there's, there's, there's so many um, factors underlying it. I, it's really hard to actually say what exactly does it. And I think there's, there's still more research needs to be done uh, on how exactly that, that works. When we consider that children are usually the ones heavy, uh, like heavily infected, uh, it could be to do with development during, of the immune system during childhood. But again, it is, it is very difficult to have a concise and definitive answer on, on this. It's true. I mean, there's a saying that um, immunology is where intuition goes to die. So it's, yeah. if you're dysregulating one TH subset, it's going to have a knock-on effect on like the others, Tregs you mentioned. Um, but yeah, and, but maybe as far as um, underlying thing, is it just the immune system being modified or could it be that the absence of uh, parasites modulates like microbe microbe interactions within our gut, maybe without involvement of the immune system. And that could be at least part um, of the, the, I'm not sure if this makes sense, but the, um, rather than like host microbe interactions, that microbe microbe interactions are what are disturbed when the parasites aren't present. So yeah, they, uh, I guess you, you're um, wondering about sort of microbiome interactions and uh, what whether the, um, it is well known that a healthy microbiome is is important for a for a healthy um healthy individual. It's it's again it's just quite difficult to disentangle these these things um, because the the whole system is as you, as you said there's so many feedback loops to from one thing to another and it is quite complex to uh, to really um, uh, to really sort of see what is uh what is the important bit what is not important so it's it's, it's really i think it's really difficult to um to make any clear, uh, clear statements of that there's definitely some evidence that the microbiome can influence allergies and um infections so it, it's it, it is really difficult yeah. sorry for not having a much better answer than that but because yeah, i think the thinking is also that um we wouldn't really maybe consider 
parasites as part of the microbiome. And when we say dysbiosis, we wouldn't think parasites are part of the equation. Mm. Um, but if we do quite consider them as we do bacteria in the microbiome, we could start thinking about like parasite probiotics and whether just with like bacterial components, maybe we could get some purified probiotic components to keep that function of educating the immune system, uh, promoting immune mm. development, but obviously without causing the pathology that comes with natural infection. Do you see that as something that, that could occur? Well, I, I, I've heard of some um, uh, experimental treatments for helminths used uh, in a range of issues, uh, like inflammatory bowel disease, uh, Crohn's disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, and even asthma. And there's some clinical evidence that the helminth therapy could actually stimulate um, immune regulatory mechanisms to help with these conditions. As far as I know, this is all still experimental work and there's no um, uh, there's no sort of widespread clinical application uh, available or even planned. But I, I think there is definitely some very interesting research going on in this. And yes, we, we don't usually consider parasites as part of the microbiome, uh, probably because in a lot of countries, um, they're no longer prevalent. And in a lot of countries where they are prevalent, there are more urgent problems um, because I mean, parasite infections, especially in children, if you've got high levels of infection, they can lead to uh, developmental uh, issues, um, sometimes even to mental retardation. So it, there are more pressing issues looking at um, things like asthma. Um, it's, I mean, I'm not saying this is a, uh, something we shouldn't be looking at, but I think if it goes all between like survival of your children and treating asthma, I think survival of the children is important. That's true, yeah. It's more far removed. Than, um, yeah. Yeah, and so this is a bit off, maybe off topic, but um, reading about your paper kind of got me in this internet loophole of um, reading about um, human remains. And there's um, this... I don't know if to call it a trend, but there's this idea of um, composting human remains. So instead of um, burying the body like in a cask, casket, uh, you, yeah, you, it's like an ecologically friend, uh, friendly alternative. Um, and I was thinking, you know, obviously if, if that happens, then you don't have the samples for future archeological generations. Um, I mean, yeah, I just was eager to hear your thoughts about this, maybe on a more trivial note, but. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's actually quite funny. So if you, uh, if you go on, on excavations, um, is um, jokes uh, among archeologists on how do you want to get buried to confuse future archeologists, you know, standing up or uh, buried upside down in Roman armor with an iPhone in your hand, or, you know, you, you can hear all sorts of interesting things. Um, these are all just on the choking side or over, over a beer, but I mean, it's, it's really impossible to say how a legacy will be discovered by future archeologists, uh, whether they would be interested or not, um, how they would discuss it in, in the context. And if we, if we actually look at some of the things we have surrounding us, um, would future archeologists really think of this tool being this tool or, um, or you've got this uh, quite common that uh, I keep joking about that uh, if you, especially in pre-written civilizations, if you find artifacts that are unclear, um, they're just ritual artifacts. 
um, because we don't know their use. But I mean, from a point of view of the parasitics, um, conventional burials is probably the best way for the parasitic to uh, survive. Uh, parasitics have, I found parasitics in uh, burials where the bones were really badly preserved, so they seem to be even sturdier than bone uh, in some circumstances. But uh, for composting, it really depends on how that, how exactly it happens. And um, because there were, uh, coming back to the, um, the sanitation issue in um, developing countries, there were actually studies on how could, without extra because in some of the regions water is, is scarce, how could, what would be the effect of a composting toilet or how do the conditions need to be for the parasites to, to die? And uh, in some of them, they actually found that they were still there and they were just concentrating because everything else was rotting. It actually made it even more dangerous. But yeah, so the, just to, it's really hard to say that these parasite eggs are, if, if you first see them through a microscope and you see an egg that has the same shape as a modern egg, but you just can't help to marvel at the, um, the evolutionary processes and at the sort of beauty of how this happened. So it's, I don't know, it, it could be that the uh, composting parasite uh, burials will get rid of the parasites. Um, maybe, hopefully we'll get actually rid before of all the parasites before we even have to question that. But I think we'll leave enough traces for future archaeologists if they really care to read uh, what, what we leave. So I think if we can remove any, uh, a disease that plagues a lot of people, mm -hmm. I think that's, the, that's a worthy trade-off. I mean, maybe future scientists will also see it as archaic to actually physically go on site. We'll just, if we upload the sequences to the cloud, to GenBank, they can just query from the databases instead of, you know, <laughs> getting yeah, up. But, yeah, that, that is, um, if, if, we, if we just generate enough sequence data, they will have our legacy in, in digital form. I think that's a, that would be a fair, fair thing to leave. Mm. Uh, and I wanted to finish off asking you the question is, um, had, could you sample any archaeological site on earth without you know, problems of funds, of rights, of ethical approval? Where would you want to go? Uh, this, is, this is a very difficult question. So I, get, I actually get asked this question more frequently than you think. What is really um, an issue is the availability. But yes, I mean, it, so my, or our ambition here would be to, to sort of plot a, a map of, of Europe on how, how it's spread and how, how we can see the interactions between the parasites on a, uh, on a smaller level. So basically get access to a lot of um, sites uh, more sites really, uh, and um, obviously funding is always an issue, but uh, um, I think having things like um, having coastal cities and uh, inland cities to compare or having uh, burials in, um, on the continent, on coastlines, it's really difficult to say what next because it's, a, it's still quite a young field of research and um, I think if we if we can get all, uh, get get word out that, uh, to archaeologists that this is research that we can do that is actually providing some very interesting information um, that is additional to what um, classical archaeology can do, 
uh, that would be great. I mean, I, I keep usually uh, if I talk to archaeologists, as I or don't see us as competition. We are just adding an extra tool into your toolbox. It's true, yeah. Um, and if people are interested in this field of research, do you where do you suggest they go read about um, or find out more? Well, there's, um, I mean, both uh, Adrian Smith and myself are very happy to uh, answer emails. Um, it's, it is a, a always a very um, interdisciplinary work, uh, as you can see on the uh, the list of authors, um, it's, it's quite international. I think all of them are um, open access. Um, so there's definitely one on the city of Lübeck and uh, the trade network that I mentioned that was published in 2018 in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. There is also um, soon another paper forthcoming uh, on more graves, yet more graves. And yes, definitely email address of, of Adrian and myself to um, uh, get in touch with if people have questions. Always try to um, answer questions and uh, this is how how research works. You you talk to more people. Okay, well thank you so much for your time. This is, uh, an, let's say, uh, an interesting conversation and uh, opening a different field of research. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. Oh, 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 oh.